Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein. Welcome to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we're going to ask Tommy Shelby whether it's time to abolish prisons. If you ask people whether we should follow the dictum, an eye for an eye, chances are you'll get a negative response. No, they'll say it's brutal, it's primitive, it leaves the whole world blind. The ship has sailed for this particular moral standard. Except... It hasn't. If we read the Bible from which it came, we'll see massive escalations in violence. Someone is killed and the victim's relatives slaughter the killer's family in retribution. Someone is raped and an entire village is destroyed in revenge. God is the worst culprit of all. People become sinners, so God floods the world and everyone drowns except Noah and his family. These are not punishments to be proud of. The goal of Hammurabi's Code the place an eye for an eye came from, was to insist upon a proportional response to crime, to stop violent escalations before it got out of hand. Its intention was to make sure that more damage wasn't done from the punishment than from the original crime. There is something very noble about putting a cap on destruction, especially in today's world of carpet bombs and decades-long economic sanctions. These days, an eye for an eye seems positively quaint. I was reminded of all this when I read a passage from The Idea of Prison Abolition. In it, our guest writes, I regard imprisonment as justified only if milder penalties are insufficient to control crime adequately. As with self-defense and just war measures, we should cause no more suffering than is necessary to protect people from harmful wrongdoing. The only punishment that is justifiable, Tommy Shelby suggests, is the bare minimum that we need to control crime. Or to use one of my own examples, if someone is attacking us and we can stop them by shooting their knees, we can't morally justify killing them. It's not quite an eye for an eye, but it's pretty close. What does this have to do with prisons? Everything. Maybe 20 years of fear, suffering, and victimization in a cage is way too harsh of a sentence for anyone. Maybe destroying someone's future, denying them a family, and removing their ability to better themselves is not the proportional response to anything. Prison, especially in the United States, is often akin to torture. Inmates are brutalized, tortured by guards and other inmates, and denied human rights by the very system that is supposed to protect them. Those who do make it through often leave the prison with nowhere to go and nothing to do. They're denied jobs, trust, empathy, even family, long after they've paid their dues. Maybe all of this is too much. Now, let me be clear about two things. First, this is me speaking and not yet Tommy. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Second, I'm not offering these as conclusions. I'm not saying lengthy incarceration is necessarily the wrong solution to society's problems. I'm simply asking that we start considering the possibility that we've been led astray, that maybe, just maybe, prisons have outlived their usefulness. My thoughts are, of course, inspired by Tommy. His book, in turn, is a consideration of proposals put forth by members of the Black Radical Movement, most notably Angela Davis. From W.B. Du Bois onward, the Black Radical solution to deep structural racism in the United States is to invite us to tear down institutions that are too broken to fix. There are lots of reasons why the Black Radical tradition attacks prisons specifically. Some argue, for example, 
that the penal system is an extension of slavery and that inmates are modern-day slaves. Others assert that prisons destroy the political power of black neighborhoods. Still others highlight that profit-seeking prisons use their influence to justify harsher sentencing, trapping people of color into economic exploitation that destroys family and inhibits the creation of generational wealth. All of these will be the subject of Tommy's and my discussion. For now, I'd simply like us to consider the dubious calculations we do when we quantify crime and punishment. Why is taking someone's life worth 20 years and not 10? Is it tradition? Actuarial statistics? Why does premeditation for the usage of a deadly weapon add years to sentences? And how much should we subtract for a childhood of poverty or being raised in a neighborhood with no meaningful educational prospects? And by the way, how do these values change when we switch from punishing inmates to rehabilitating them or demand that they provide restitution or participate in restorative practices? Aren't these all things we need to be pretty damn certain about before we mete out justice? Prison sentencing presumes both that there is some objective analog to every crime and that we know what it is. But the fact of the matter is that sentencing is both subjective and idiosyncratic. The end result is distorted by political considerations, judicial personality, and frighteningly often, the color of a defendant's skin. I would suggest that when it comes to justifying incarceration, there is more reasonable doubt than certainty about the validity of the process, and this in turn calls into questions the existence of prisons themselves. Is this enough to stop using prisons? Of course not. Is it enough to put the question on the table? For sure. And that's what we're about to do. And now our guest, Tommy Shelby, is Caldwell Titcomb Professor in the Department of African American Studies and the Department of Philosophy at Harvard University. He's the author of three books, most recently, The Idea of Prison Abolition. This is also Tommy's second appearance on our show. He joined us in July 2016 for a discussion called How to Think Philosophically About Black Identity. Tommy, welcome back to Why. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you, Jack. To our listeners, if you'd like to participate, please share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on social networks. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. Rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform so that others can find the show and listen to all 15 years worth of episodes for free, as well as our sister show, Philosophical Currents, at our website, yradioshow.org. And as always, this show can only happen with your support. We exist solely on listener contributions, so click donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Alumni Foundation portal. So with all that work done, Tommy, I think it's worth by it's worth beginning by acknowledging that there's some folks who are going to dismiss the idea of abolishing prisons from the very start. They'll wave it all away by saying, of course we need prisons. How do we get their attention? How do we get that kind of skepticism? How do we get those people to take the idea seriously? I think a couple of ways one might approach that. I mean, one is just to point out that the practice of imprisonment imp imposes tremendous harm, not only on those in prison, but on their families and their communities, it can break relationships, it can throw a person's life course to totally off track. And so whenever a society is going to use a practice that causes that kind of harm with those kind of ramifications, I think it's important to reflect on whether the practice is truly justified. Uh, that would be true of other kind of practices like that that have that kind of, these kind of destructive consequences. We'd always want to reflect on whether the practice is truly justified. And the fact that it's existed for a long time uh, in itself is not a reason to 
think that uh, questioning it um, makes no sense or is absurd. I think another way to, to approach it is to just think about the, the question of, say, capital punishment, which most people think is a perfectly fine question. You know, should we have it? Should people be put to death, even if they do something really horrific and horrible? And a lot of people think the answer is no. And in most, many parts of the world, people have abolished the practice entirely. Uh, and I think there's an analogous question here, right? The, uh, the, maybe there are some penalties that are appropriate for certain kinds of harmful wrongdoing, but uh, in this case, you might wonder, well, is this one, this particular penalty, one that's justified as a response to a harmful wrongdoing? So I, those are usually the ways in which I try to get people to to take up the question more seriously than they might otherwise. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of capital punishment because I think, now, this is theory, of course, but I think that if I'm going to choose between being put to death and spending 30 years in a supermax prison, uh, or frankly, any of the really awful prisons we hear about, that I might choose death. Am I... Am I overselling it? Am I the victim of Hollywood? Are prisons really not that bad? Many of them really are that bad. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, even in the United States, I mean, one thing to, to emphasize is that, um, you know, we do have federal prisons. They have about, you know, eight to nine percent of the prison population. But the vast majority of, of, of prisoners are in various state and municipal uh, incarceration facilities, and these vary enormously um, by state and municipality. Some of them can be quite horrific. And certainly if you're in a supermax uh, prison where you're spending 23 hours a day in a cell alone, with almost no interaction with other prisoners, only an hour to kind of stretch your legs outside of your cell, all supervised in just a, a larger cage. Yeah, I think a lot of people would regard death as preferable to, to those, those kinds of constraints when it's going to happen over many, many years, perhaps the rest of your life. Uh, but there are, you know, variations. There are certainly prisons that are, you know, you know minimum security or medium security uh, where you're not confined to your cell all the time. Sometimes the cells even are open if it's not pretty, if it's a minimum security. So there's a lot of variation. So in some cases, yeah, I would say it wouldn't be irrational to prefer death to imprisonment. But I, I think there can be lots of cases that are, that are not quite like that. Now, the way I asked the question, pulling on you know my own instinct and the realities of the world we're in now, that is certainly the way that many people start the conversation. And you acknowledge this, but, but you start your conversation by looking back in history towards W.B. Du Bois, Huey Newton, black, black radicalism, and specifically Angela Davis. Other than I know from our previous conversation that you are heavily influenced by Du Bois, why did you decide to go that route? What is it attract? What's attractive to you about black radicalism, and why respond to Angela Davis specifically? Well, I mean, there are many things that attract me to the black radical tradition. Probably the most important is um, it's the tradition that I think that's most that has always systematically engaged with questions of racial justice and economic justice in a way that's combined. Right, that this takes both seriously, thinks hard about how to interact 
and thinks about what are the appropriate responses to social orders that are structured by economic inequality and racial domination. That tradition has many, many figures, Du Bois being probably maybe the most famous and central figure to thinking about that set of questions and ramifications of, of, of race and class in America and globally. So that's a big part of attraction, and Davis is a part of that tradition, uh, a central figure who draws on insights from many Black thinkers, but also from Marxism and other socialist thinkers uh, as they try to come to terms with you know, our contemporary moment and the, 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 the legacy of historical forms of oppression. You, at one point, you quote Asada Shakur uh, talking about the impact of, of, of the threat that of prison might have and, and how that threat isn't quite as serious as some people might think. And, and Shakur uh, says that, you know, prisons are maximum security, but the streets, meaning the ghetto and the places where many people grow up, are minimum security. That really struck me. I, that that spoke to my history growing up in a bad neighborhood. It speaks to all of the the stories I know of people who are growing up in Watts and 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 East LA. Is 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 that too hyperbole, or is there really are 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 the people who end up in prison leading such awful lives that prison may be a notch worse, but isn't such a radical difference that they're not motivated by by the threat. Yeah, I mean I think it's not entirely hyperbolic. I mean it's there are when you think about what we should be trying to do when we use the practice of imprisonment, part of what we're trying to do, it's not the only thing, but part of what we're trying to do, should be trying to do, is deter people from engaging in certain kinds of unlawful, harmful wrongdoing. And I think we do that by attaching a, a penalty that includes something that, that is generally undesirable, something that people would like to avoid, uh, that deprive, deprives some, someone of a thing they would like to have. Um, and so that's going to be effective uh, in cases where you'd have to give up a lot. Uh, if you committed a crime and you got caught, you'd be giving giving up a lot, much more than you would want to give up. But if you're under living under very uh, deprived conditions, if you're severely disadvantaged, um, having a hard time meeting your basic needs, uh, subject to mistreatment of various sorts, um, you know, then the 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 incentive, the negative incentive here, is not going to be as effective. So I think in, in in that sense, I think that that's partly what Shakur is talking about is. Um, you're, you're going to be less frightened by the prospect of, of prison when the conditions you're living under kind of resemble it in some, in some respects. So I think part of what anybody who thinks that prisons are legitimate and what thinks they need to be reformed, part of what they should be trying to do is improve the life conditions of people in society so that the penalty of prison is actually something that it would be rational uh, to avoid risking having it imposed on you. So I think that that's part of what she's after. Um, and she's one person in the broader, as you mentioned, back radical tradition, along with Davis and many others who have spent a lot of time in prison and reflect on these questions 
um, from that point of view, from the point of view of someone who's, you know, spent time inside, um, and it gives a kind of special weight to what she's what she's speaking about. You you mentioned that later on in the book, and 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 one of the things you say, a version of what you just said, is is that if prison isn't such a threat, then maybe what we have to do is look at the world that people live in to ask why it's so bad that prison ceases to be a threat. So let's take a look at some of the larger structural injustices. Let's look at the conditions people live in. But how much does the ambiguity of that sentence hang over your writing? And what I mean by that is, is Marx is a wonderful critic. He's powerful. I love teaching him because his his incisive and insightful attack on particular aspects of capitalism are often unchallengeable. But he has no real solution. There's no picture of what a communist society looks like. There's also no picture of what a society without prison is going to look like either. How hard is it for you to challenge and to critique the call for prison abolition if the picture of what they're trying to accomplish is so vague? It makes it somewhat more challenging. Um, You know, there's a dimension of utopianism in the vision. and depending on how you look at it, this could be seen as a, you know, a, a, a bad kind of utopianism. I think there are good dimensions of utopianism, but there, there are some downsides. And, and one of them is that you're kind of asking people to take a pretty big leap of faith um, that you could actually bring about a social order that didn't require the use of imprisonment um, when you don't have any models in front of you. Right. I mean, that's it's a there's a comparable challenge for those people who, you know, want to abolish capitalism, as you say. I mean, there's there's the the, the examples that we have don't inspire confidence uh, about what a, a society that was structured by collective ownership of productive assets and that eliminated the labor market that. So there's a comparable worry here. We don't when we look at a modern world, you know, we don't see. Uh, all all modern nations have prisons, for instance, and we don't have a thing we can point to and say, "Look, see, you could do without it." We do have history in the sense that you know we haven't always had prisons, and there are many societies that have not had prisons in the past. It's a it's a modern invention, probably one that's appropriate to you know mass society that are very pluralistic and. Um, maybe not least is tightly bound by a set of common values and traditions. And uh, so you can look back and you can say, look, there, there, there have been social orders in the past that did not have prisons uh, and they seem to get by. Um, but probably mostly what people would say in defense of the kind of worry that this is a kind of bad utopianism is they, they look at kind of smaller local experiments in living, if you can put it that way, kind of attempts to kind of prefigure a life without relying on law enforcement and criminal law or really dramatically limiting it, seeing what happens when you 
meet people's basic needs, when you attend to harm in ways that don't involve uh, imposing further harm or violence. And you kind of see, and you, you try to build up from those local experiments to something on a larger scale. I think that's the, the way a lot of abolitionists think of it, you know, rather than thinking of it as let's just close every prison to, today and just hope for the best. <laughs> Hardly anybody is, is saying that. There's a scene in Stephen King's book, The Stand, late on in the novel, where people are living in uh, the town that's that's actually Boulder, Colorado, that, that where people are just starting to gather and there's just starting to be a mass of people. And a guy gets drunk and starts breaking windows and no one stops him because nobody feels they have the authority to stop him that no one there's no police there's no mayor there's no one who's in charge it's it's, it's all very ad hoc and 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 almost communal to what extent do you think we need and and that prisons and and police provide a sense of authority that gives people agency to take responsibility for other people's actions, whether they're their own. Do you think, I mean, as I read it in the black black radical tradition and anarchist traditions and in in communist traditions, there's there's a sense that people under conditions of justice will be at their best. And so we don't have to worry about other people as much because people are worrying about themselves. Do you think that that's naive? Do you think that prisons provide some sense of authority to 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 give us an excuse to have responsibility for other people? I'm not I'm not sure that I'm asking the question exactly clearly, but I'm hoping you you understand what I'm asking. I think so. Um, I mean, the, the the broader abolitionist tradition. I mean, it's, you know, they've been abolitionists for a long time. Um, you know, well, in the early 19th century, that especially in anarchist tradition. And I think many of these, the people who are kind of attracted to anarchism, I'm not myself, but those, those who are, do imagine kind of smaller, decentralized communities where people take responsibility for each other, are connected to pretty thick bonds of reciprocity. And as a result, um, there's less of a worry about uh, uh, certain kinds of breaking of the of the social rules, and that you need to take a really drastic response, like confinement, in order to address it. Um, so I think partly what's motivating at least some people in in the tradition is a, a, partly a rejection of you know mass society where there's a governing state that uses the threat of force to keep people in line, the thought that that's, that maybe that's appropriate for that form of life, but maybe that form of life itself should be, should be questioned, um, where we are all kind of acting, just thinking about our own interest or an interest of our family and loved ones and they'll have no thicker sense of ties to others, no sense of responsibility to others and their needs. I think partly what's being challenged is that that vision that I think a lot of people accept in, you know, contemporary mass market societies. So, you know, the question of, well, do you need uh, legal authority might partly depend 
on whether you think there's a defensible form of mass market society that we should embrace and have allegiance to, or whether that itself should be something that we should be calling to, into question. And I myself have, you know, am, am invested in, in wanting to try to get the benefits of living in larger science-based market societies uh, without its downsides and trying to figure out a way to think about what reforms would be appropriate to make that form of life one worth uh, supporting and defending. When we come back, we'll pull that thread and we'll start looking at the meat of your argument. Uh, but until then, you're listening to Tommy Shelby and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll return right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Tommy Shelby about abolishing prisons. And what Tommy is going to do is look at the argument put forth, particularly by Angela Davis and the Black Radical Movement, uh, for abolishing prisons. And he's going to tone that down quite a bit and, 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 and argue for a more um, reform-based approach. And, and, and we'll get there. But I keep thinking about this experience I had that I actually think about quite a lot. I was early on in my career uh, still looking for a permanent tenure track job, still at the stage of, of, of my career where uh, publications were everything and, and, and where you really had to distinguish yourself. And I went to visit Alcatraz with a friend and we're, we're looking at the 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 very tiny cells. And the first thought that still kind of haunts me today is, my God, I would get so much work done. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's almost obscene. What's perverse about that point of view? Why am I misrepresenting the prison experience when I look at it that way? And what am I missing? What are, what are prisons for and why would I not get any work done? Oh, great question. Um, it reminds me of how some people reacted um, during the height of the pandemic of being like confined to their homes. And they were, this must be what prison is like. <laughs> kind of right. um, uh, not quite. <laughs> so, I mean, I think part of when you, there's a tendency when people think about prison to kind of abstract the, the experience inside a cell. Like that's really the heart of, of what prison is. It's like you're in a cell, you're like in this room, right? maybe back by yourself. But I think when you, the, the practice of imprisonment is a, is not just locking people up in a building or a room, right? It's a, it's a broader hierarchical practice that has a lot of administrators who are really directing every aspect of your day and controlling your movements, 
what you can say, what you can wear, who you can associate with, when you can speak, controlling your meals, controlling all your contact with the outside world, with your family and friends, you know, surveillance over uh, when you do interact with family and friends, track, you know, tracking your correspondence and so on. So there's really like a, a, a wide set of constraints that are in place that uh, are not best represented or, or best understood by just thinking about what it means to be locked in a room. Uh, that, of course, is, is horrifying to some people, but I think it's more the separation from the broader public and your family and friends combined with the uh, you know, really quite dramatic and comprehensive control that prison administrators have over your life and over the course of your day over perhaps many years that I think is more what's horrifying about it and meant to be scary in a way so that people will conform to the law so they don't have to face that kind of that kind of penalty. Is this the kind of thing that makes so many of the writers you're engaged with suggest that there's a direct line between slavery and prisons? I mean, obviously, there's the whole discussion of just ushering black men in particular into into prisons to get them out of society, which is related but not exactly the same question. But so many of the writers that you engage with use the slavery metaphor, use the historical connection as evidence of the inherent corruptness of prison. Is what they're saying fair? I mean, on the one hand, right, the COVID-19 example, it's, it's, it's too little. It's too easy. No, it's not prison. Your life is a lot better than that. On the other hand, maybe the slavery example is too much. Maybe, maybe, maybe that oversells the position. Is, is that the kind of thing that, that they're talking about that you want to respond to? I mean, I do. I mean, I think not just, I mean, I should say I'm partly interested in uh, the prison abolition movement and its arguments because it, there are some patterns of, of reasoning, patterns of argument that, extend out beyond just thinking about criminal law and law enforcement. And and one of those patterns is the tendency to invoke slavery as a way of critiquing various social practices, social conditions. And, and that makes sense in a lot of ways because, you know, slavery is, you know, one of these practices are, that is pretty universally condemned these days. wasn't always so, of course, but these days, everyone thinks that slavery is 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 wrong, and that wherever it exists, it should be stopped immediately. So, if you can show that a practice is like slavery, then that can be a strong moral argument for why you ought to end that practice, uh, perhaps immediately. I think there are are limits to that way of arguing. Um, uh, it's hard to get from those kinds of arguments to the thought that the practice of imprisonment is inherently unjust. I think mostly what you get, and I think it's fair, that the existing practice of imprisonment in some places is too much like slavery and so should be changed fundamentally. But I think you rarely get to the conclusion that the, the practice of imprisonment as such 
is one that shouldn't exist because it's inherently dehumanizing or inherently uh, a, a form of bondage or it's inherently a way of trafficking in human bodies and so on. I think it's much harder to get to that conclusion. And so part of what I try to do in the book is suggest there are lessons here about existing practices that point toward perhaps rather dramatic reforms in uh, our prison systems, but to counsel against an over-reliance on these kinds of analogies when we, I think we have other moral resources to draw on to think about when a practice should exist and, and when it shouldn't. I, I, I want to ask you more about that because you're doing moral philosophy ultimately in this discussion and, and in the, in the book, you're not, you're not doing a practical analysis. You're not doing criminology per se. You're, you're looking at this from a moral point of view. So, so why is it difficult to get to that conclusion that prison isn't a form of bondage, that prison isn't a form of, of trafficking. As we'll talk about in a little bit, there's profit-seeking, there's uh, loss of agency, there's, there's, there's all sorts of other issues. So, so why? Why, do you, why are you resistant to this, to, to this idea that, that that fundamental similarity of bondage and 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 disrespect and 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 exploitation and and in the, the, the using people as as tools and instruments in a way that that's dehumanizing why is that so hard to get to well part of it is um a lot of these practices the things you mentioned are things that are not really essential to the practice of incarceration as a penalty for committing a crime um, they are often attendant to such practices. Um, so it's very different from the case where you know, nobody thinks where, you know, uh, here's a form of slavery that's, you know, removes the, you know, arbitrary abuse and removes a, a lot of the cruelty and so on. See, it's not so bad. You know, everybody thinks that, you know, owning people, buying and selling people, forcing people to, to work uh, without pay, controlling their family relations. Everybody thinks that those things are, uh, are inherently wrong. There's no way of reforming slavery to make it acceptable. Uh, I think in the case of incarceration, when you think about what it involves, right? You have the segregation from the, outs from the broader community. There's a hierarchical structure of confinement rules of order that shape the person's, uh, person's life while they're inside. But that practice, you know, we use it in lots of other contexts when, we, when the ends are different, right? So we sometimes use it uh, when we're, they're prisoners of war and you're fighting a war and people are captured and you hold them in confinement until the, the, the conflict ceases. And it ha will have all the same structure. And I think few people would say, well, that's slavery. Um, I think we pull people in psychiatric hospitals when they're dangerous to others or sometimes to themselves um, uh, to, so that they can receive treatment. But they also are confined in a hierarchical institution um, with uh, separation from the broader public. And we don't think, most people don't think that's inherently wrong. Maybe it's abused. Maybe it's used too often, but it's not inherently wrong. 
So I think part of the question here is whether the practice of incarceration, this way of confining people in this institutional context and not allowing people to, to, to leave without authorities' permission, whether that kind of practice is something that you could have without all these other attendant problems, profit-seeking, abuse of authority, cruelty, susceptibility to, to interpersonal violence, and so on. So I think part of the trouble is what most people are doing is they're focusing on the, the forms of imprisonment that have all these other elements that I think really can't be defended. But that's not quite the same as saying that the very practice of incarcerating people uh, is, is just like slavery or uh, has the same, if you like, wrong-making feature that slavery has. Now, we still haven't, and I'm going to put it off for another minute, gotten to the question of what prisons are for, whether it's punishment or retribution or rehabilitation or, or things like that. And I, and I want the listeners to know that we're going to get there. But you said something, you, you, you said in, in your last answer that it doesn't get to the, the essence of the question of prisons and the essence of, of incarceration. And, and this is a very, very philosophical move. And this is, this is very important in the kind of work that, that philosophers do, especially philosophers who are going towards a, a, a more analytic approach, but don't worry about that at home. Um, but suppose someone comes along and says, well, look, um, if we look at the essence of prisons, we're hiding the fact that the kind of things that you talked about, the abuse of power, for example, uh, it isn't technically part of incarceration, but it is, in fact, indistinguishable or inseparable from it. Part of the problem with prisons in the United States is the culture of, of, of imprisoning, for lack of a better term, is horrendous. You get guards who are abusive and, 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 and who are violent themselves, who are bullies, right? Much the same where people have similar critiques of, of police in general, that, that, that you can't talk about American policing without talking about the, the high school, I'm going to be really crass here, the high school bullying incel aspect of, of the domestic abuser that is the, the police officer. Um, now, let me say I'm talking in someone else's voice there, but but I think it's important to do that as, as directly as possible. So if you're talking about the essence of prison, can you really move away from the inherent abuse that the people who make up the prison engage in? Uh, or do you, or, or, or are you, I don't know, defining away the problem? Great question. I think about answering two parts. So, uh, one of the things that I that I say in the in the book that I wish I had kind of lingered on a little longer was that, you know, when I make these sort of conceptual points about, you know, what imprisonment is and you know what's the difference between the the, the practice as we know it and the practice as it could be, uh, I don't emphasize enough that most of the things that I mentioned as things that you could you know, you could have prison without these other problems. Uh, I, I say that 
because in many in many societies and even in some states in the United States, those conditions already exist. So it's not just a you dream up these things. I mean, they're right. you know if you look comparatively at you know prisons in Germany or the the Netherlands or in uh, Norway and other other places, you'll uh, you know you will see very different kind of prison life. You will see different ways in which the prison authorities and, 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 and prisoners interact and you'll see larger cells and all kinds of things. So it's not as if, you know, the things I'm talking about, we, we've never seen a, a, a prison that lacked these objectionable features. Uh, I think it's rare in the United States that you see uh, prisons that, are, that I would regard as acceptable um, especially at the higher levels of security, when you're talking about a, a maximum security prison or a supermax prison, you, you you know pretty much never see the conditions that I, I regard as acceptable. Um, so that's partly what I would would want to emphasize. I think um, it is a real worry that one is kind of trying to give a philosopher's answer to a practical problem. But I think that the, the problem you're raising rises in other contexts too, right? So you, you know, we rely on the practice of the family to raise children. And we're well aware of the fact that there are many dangers that are attendant to that. We understand that, that children are quite vulnerable um, in this situation, to abuse and neglect, we understand that it's in many ways a dangerous practice uh, that we have. And we have to ask whether that practice could be made better so that the, the benefits outweigh the, the risks of, of having. And that's true of many practices that we have, uh, that there are inherent dangers, uh, whether that's driving motor vehicles where, you know, more than 30,000 people are going to die this year in a, in, a, in a traffic accident, and many more are going to be going to be harmed. And we have to ask those same questions. This is a dangerous practice. You know, are the benefits uh, worth it? And I think that's true of prisons, too. It's like this is a, a, a very dangerous practice with the, the, the threat of abuse of power, of people being mistreated and treated cruelly is... Uh, is a real risk and happens often. And I think the question for anybody who thinks that that practice is defensible is to ask whether there are ways we could structure or restructure the practice to limit the amount of such abuse and uh, such cruelty. And I think that's really the challenge for anybody who wants to try to reform the practice. I think that's a really powerful and important answer. And let me and and tell me if I'm I'm getting this right what you're saying. That the benefit of the philosopher's essentialist approach is that we're distinguishing between those things that have to be a part of the system and those things that don't. So incarceration may be inseparable from prison, but abuse isn't. So to say, well let's burn the whole thing down is not to, to give enough credit to say, looking at the Danish model or the Norwegian model of prisons and to say, look, there, there are prisons in which uh, 
we can have incarceration that that better respects humanity and agency and that uh the 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 goal here is to give us enough of a analysis to be able to distinguish between those things that we can reform and those things we can't and the lesson we get is when you're doing when you're building a prison or operating a prison you've got to be extra super careful because it's easy to slide into the things we don't have to do that it might even be feel natural to slide into the things that that we do and so we have to be as uh, attentive at possible at all times so that we only focus on the essence and the things that are good and work to 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 destroy the things that are bad is is that a fair interpretation of what you just said yeah i think that is a a, a fair a fair reading what i just said i mean i think you could think about the same the same question arises at the level of political economy just by analogy right so there are many people probably uh many if not most of your listeners who think that uh Capitalism, as we know it, has many problems. But they probably also think that those problems can be tamed or mitigated uh, in a way that would make it still just to continue this way of meeting our basic needs through having this kind of concentration of wealth and control over basic material assets and productive assets and over finance. And having other people, you know, providing labor to uh, to allow others to accumulate great great wealth. That this is a way of meeting our basic needs. And though it has many problems and it can be destructive in lots of ways, those things can be mitigated if you take certain kinds of actions. I think there's an analogous question here about the practice of imprisonment, and 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 the answer can. And I don't mean to. I'm not trying to foreclose the, the negative answer. I mean. I mean, it could be right. uh, whether we're talking about capitalism or imprisonment. That it turns out that no, you can't. You can't. You can't. There's no way of having these practices without all these other evils. We can't mitigate them to a sufficient degree um, that would justify it. I mean, of course, a natural response that a lot of people have is, uh, which I think maybe part of partly what we began, which is. Um, well, what are we going to do if not if not that? <laughs> you know, so what's the alternative, and is the alternative any better? Uh, and I think that is a, a a question that I think abolition raises, and and there's a burden on 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 abolitionist part to to give us a convincing answer to whether the alternative they're proposing is one that would do better in these dimensions without having us give up too much of what we really would want to hold on to. It's. <laughs> It's such a difficult question, and you and you do such a good job in the book of, of taking it seriously, of, of going detail by detail, step by step, in a way that philosophers do very well, and 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 you do excellently. That that you're you're just patiently going from step by step, argument by argument. They say this, well, but this the essence doesn't work here. They say that, well, you're ignoring or or emphasizing this or that. Um, 
let's go back then to the question that I promised we'd answer because because I think that it helps focus our whole conversation. If we're talking about essential to incarceration, if we're talking about prison in and of itself, what is prison for? Is it for punishment? Is it for rehabilitation? Is it for retribution and revenge? Is it some kind of healing practice? What is prison for? And well, I was going to ask, and who goes there? But but let's let's do do the first because it's hard. What's prison for? So the way I think about this question is. Um... The only real justification you could have for a practice like imprisonment is that it helps to limit or control serious harmful wrongdoing. Um, so then the question is, well, how might it do that? How could it help control or minimize or limit that kind of serious harmful wrongdoing? I think you can do it in three ways. It can do it by uh, as I mentioned earlier, being a kind of deterrent. It's a, a negative incentive that everybody understands that if they do certain kinds of things, that this will be the penalty for it. Uh, it can do it by uh, incapacitating dangerous individuals who we have reason to believe are a serious threat to other safety. And sometimes we have to confine them because they were not and cannot be deterred. And sometimes we can control uh, crime or limit it by reforming those who have engaged in that conduct. That's the rehabilitation part that we try to provide services and counseling, equipping them to live as an equal among us without being a threat to other people's liberty or person or, or legitimate property. So uh, deterrence, incapacitation, and rehabilitation, I think, are the appropriate aims of the practice of imprisonment, and they're all meant to be ways of trying to limit and control serious crime, is how I think about it. I do not think retribution is a legitimate end of punishment. Um, now, some people, when they hear punishment, they just immediately think, retribution or a kind of public revenge. Uh, whereas I just think of it as just, it's just, a, it's just a penalty. It's a deprivation or imposition of some undesirable uh, uh, condition or, or, or suffering that uh, discourages people from doing it. So if you know we give fines to people who drive too fast on the highway uh, or who don't pay their taxes or Whatnot, and we can. Uh, there are other kinds of penalties, whether it's a community service, um, or, or or home confinement, or the loss of certain privileges. And all of these are penalties. They're all punishments. They're all ways of, you know, attaching a penalty to, to certain kinds of wrongdoing, the breaking of certain rules. And we hope that by having a practice of that sort, that will discourage people from doing those things. Um, and I think, you know, imprisonment can function very similarly. And and we don't need to think that, you know, when we're finding people or, or making them do community service, that we're exacting revenge against them, that we're trying to retaliate against them. We can just see it as a part of what it means in a, in a society like our own to try to maintain basic order and safety so everyone can 
get the full benefits of their freedoms and, and opportunities. So the purpose of prison for you is to minimize wrongdoing. Now, let's say, God forbid, someone did something to my daughter. My instinct as a father and knowing who I am as a human being, I would want them to suffer every day for the rest of their lives. I wouldn't want the death penalty because I want I would want their life to be solitary, long, brutish, and short, right? To steal line from Hobbes. Why isn't that prison's job? Why isn't the job of prison to make people suffer? It's certainly, I think, a familiar disposition that human beings have to retaliate against those who've harmed them or those they love, to to want to see those suffer who've who've treated them badly. Um, I think it's a separate question about whether acting on that disposition or sentiment is justified. That's a different question. Right. I, I, sure. It's understandable. It's totally understandable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can relate. <laughs> but uh, you know the question about whether it's that's 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 justified is a different is, is a different question. I mean I think it's probably useful to kind of because there are people who think that retribution is the aim of punishment or at least one of the aims of punishment. That's, that's probably most people probably think that. Um, Maybe it's useful just to say a little bit about what I think that kind of view entails, um, because there's a lot of disagreement. So I think partly what people who think it's a justification, not just uh, an understandable sentiment, they think that it's uh, that when you do certain kinds of wrong things that you deserve to suffer. They also think that that... uh, depending on the thing that you did, that you should suffer in proportion to how wrong that thing was. The worst thing you did, the worst you should have to suffer or pay. They typically think that. They also tend to think that it's good in itself, quite apart from any public safety benefits. It's just good that people, when they do certain kinds of wrong things, that uh, they suffer proportionately for having done it, regardless of whether that has any public safety benefits. And they also think, I think probably most critically, that they think the state, our governing authorities, that it's a part of their rights, a part of their authority, and it's part of their obligation to ensure that those who do wrong in these ways experience the suffering they deserve. Now, I myself uh, don't accept any of those four things. But it, and we could talk about that a bit more. But I think anybody who did want to defend retribution, I think, has to explain why each of those thoughts are are fully justified. And I think, and in particular, I think it's very challenging that even if you think that it's good that people suffer in proportion to their wrongdoing, it's quite another thing to think that it's the state's responsibility and its right to ensure that everybody get that suffering. That, I think, is a much harder thing to defend, even if the other three things have some merit. You're very explicit. Uh, I just looked it up while you were talking on page 129. You, you're very explicit that, that you uh, 
don't rely on the premise that those who commit crimes deserve to suffer, right? I mean, so you address this very specifically. And and what comes to mind when I hear you talk about it here, and again, listeners, this is my voice, <laughs> not Tommy's, is that this ultimately feels like the legacy of, of, of Christianity, that there is a metaphysical belief that people who sin deserve to suffer and that suffering is good and that that's why we have hell and 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 things like that and that Jonathan Edwards famously has this this uh, sermon where he he takes pleasure in in the fact that people are are destined to hell do you think that that this notion that prison is part of just suffering, I'll call it just suffering, is endemic in our culture that if we were <laughs> nicer people as a whole, if we were better, more empathetic, even more forgiving people as a whole, to use the Christian language, that we would have a very different conception of what prison is? I mean, probably. I mean, there's there's enough uh, research on these questions and, you know, you see really big differences and tendencies toward retributive thinking um, when you compare the U.S. to say, you know, parts of Western Europe and so on, where those sentiments are not as not as prevalent. Um, and it's hard not to see it as partly that, you know, we, our culture is maybe more, you know, religious, the public culture is a little more, more religious than, uh, I wouldn't want to just pick on Christianity, it's true. Sure. Of, of a number of, of, of Wiley Hill, Wiley endorsed faiths that, um, and, you know, and the, the God is represented in a number of faiths is represented as, as uh, a vengeful God as a God that, that does impose retribution when people disobey. So it is very, it's, it's broad spread in the culture and it's a kind of thing that one would um, have to confront if you want to try to, move in the direction I think we ought to move. Um, but notice again, like the, the last point I made about the need for a public justification for a harmful practice like imprisonment. And it just seems to me that this is a, at best a sectarian justification for retribution insofar as it relies on these theological beliefs these are not ones that you could expect all your fellow citizens to endorse if they don't endorse those faiths. And I think for a practice like imprisonment, the public justification needs to be one that uh, any reasonable person, regardless of their religious beliefs, could could endorse. And I don't think that retribution is really going to meet meet that standard. Um, uh, so I agree that you, and, unless you get people to reconsider, uh, not necessarily reconsider their religious beliefs, I don't think that's necessary to get where I think we need to go. I think what they need to reconsider is whether those religious beliefs should be embodied in public law and in our criminal legal system. I think that's a different question. 
Very, very quickly, implicit in your comment is <laughs> our allusions to John Rawls, which uh, would take an entire semester to unpack, and I do that every every two years. But the the gist of what you're saying for our listeners, if I understand correctly, is is that whatever theological belief, whatever religious beliefs people have, when we have a public conversation for the justification of prisons, we have to engage in it in a way that that everyone can approve of regardless of their religious beliefs so there's this this notion of reasonableness and public conversation what's allowed and what's not allowed at some point i should probably do a, sh a show on rawls i try not to do shows on individual <laughs> philosophers but at some point I, I probably ought to do that because it'll make all the political philosophy much clearer to everyone I want to shift slightly, though, from that to the question of, of privatization, because one of the central justifications, secular justifications in our society, one of the things that everyone pretty much believes in our society is that people have a right to make money, that people have a right to to earn money from people's suffering and unhappiness. That's why we have dentists. That's we have locksmiths. That's we, why we have uh a whole host of other people, not the least of whom are prison guards and um, and police officers. So, to what extent are you swayed by, or do you find convincing, or not at all, this idea that prisons should be private, that prisons should be run like a business, and that uh, that's acceptable? Be because a lot of people, and this is not just the black radical tradition, but but a lot of people find the notion of a private prison particularly egregiously unjust. That that profit seeking over people who are um, who have no agency is just. I mean, just just awful. I, I can't think of a more sophisticated mm -hmm. way to put it. So how much does the privatization question come in? Where do you stand on that? And how does the, the black radical tradition approach that? I mean, it probably, I probably should start by just emphasizing that, you know, private prisons are a pretty small part of the broader landscape, landscape of imprisonment in the United States. Um, you know, fewer than 10% of the U.S. prisoners are in privately, uh, private, private prisons, for-profit prisons. Um, many of those are in the, the federal system, whereas the vast majority of um, prisoners are in the state system. Some eighty percent of in the in the state system, and many states don't have private private prisons. Um, so sometimes it's a little bit over overdone when people emphasize that aspect. Uh, but I would agree that there are many reasons to object to it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, one of those reasons is uh, has to do with the perverse incentives that are uh, operate there. It's probably not a good idea to uh, have a practice where people companies have an incentive to uh, have lots of prisoners. <laughs> you know, so uh, and that's will be true, right? You can't have a business uh, of running prisons if there aren't prisoners, and so it's like it cuts against your interest to um, have uh, a reduction in the number of prisoners that we have, which I think is a is a, is a demand of justice that we dramatically reduce the prison population and um, uh, the 
that part of the corporate world would be strongly opposed to and lobby against it. Um, but th there are other worries too. I mean, I do think it's, um, you know, worrisome insofar as that privatization extends to access to prison labor on a for-profit basis. I don't think people should be compelled to to work for private companies for, for profit. Uh, and insofar as that's happened, that would be another reason to 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 object to it. Um, but I don't I don't object per se in relying on private institutions to carry out some public aims. I think sometimes that can be a positive thing to have private entities play some role, especially under conditions that are pretty seriously unjust and where you can't really rely on the government to fully carry out its public mission. Sometimes uh, you have to rely on some elements of the private sector to, to fill a void. But that's not that ideally, you know, what you have is a government that, that carries out those functions. But that isn't always the case. So sometimes we have to rely on the levers that are 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 available to us, and, and sometimes that's a private organization, even a for profit. So that's really interesting because the, the one of the implicit one of the arguments implicit in in the anti private prison discussion is that corporations are inherently more unjust than government. But part of what you're saying is, well, if the government isn't doing its job, then there's a possibility that, that the corporate, that, that the, the company, the corporation, whatever can actually be better and more just, especially if, if they have a narrow job of feeding the prisoners, they'll make sure that the prisoners get fed, uh, cleaning the prisoners clothes. They'll make sure that the, the, the clothes get, get cleaned, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. As you point out in the book, it's unclear what people are attacking when they're attacking private prisons, because even public prisons still engage with private sources. So is ultimately the question, is the philosophical question as follows, is it wrong to make a profit from people's incarceration? Is that the essence of the question? And if it is, can you answer it? If it isn't, what is the question? I, I mean, that's a question that people are implicitly raising, but I think it's often not the one they, that they should be asking. I mean, I think um, sometimes what people were objecting to is capitalism, <laughs> as we know it. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, and maybe capitalism as imagined, they may be opposed to it. And uh, there's just no way to, in a capitalist economy, to carry out any public function on a large scale without reliance on for-profit companies. So even a, a completely public prison uh, is gonna need supplies and other services that, that are gonna be provided by the for-profit private sector, whether that's clothes or food, 
medical care, other kinds of technology, all kinds of things that are needed and that are going to be produced by uh, the broader capitalist economy. Um, so sometimes I think when the people are objecting to uh, for-profit companies having a role in, uh, in, pri in prison systems, they're really just objecting to, to capitalism as such. I think it's be, be better to just be clear about that that's really what your objection is. And we can, that's an important discussion and one I think well worth having. Um, and separate that out from, are they objecting to the practice of imprisonment itself? Uh, and also to be maybe clear about, you know, which particular interventions into the prison system by the corporate world are illegitimate and unacceptable and which ones might be defensible and acceptable under some circumstances. And that seems to me a better place for the discussion to take place because it's just, it's just not uh, possible to, you know, as I say in the book, right? I mean, what would it mean to have a, a school system without where the private sector plays no role? I mean, who's making the desks and the books and who's providing all the supplies and, and so on and so forth. So, so now maybe some people would just say, yeah, that's correct. That, uh, it's always legitimate to have these encroachments when it comes to carrying out these public functions. That's part of their argument for a socialist economy. But I'm like, let's just hear that argument and we can and have that discussion. And I think talking about the prison is just going to be a distraction from the thing that is really at issue. So I, I have, I have one more question uh, about the meat of your argument or, or one of your conclusions. And then I'm going to ask you a sort of a, a weird question to, con to conclude okay. the, 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 the question, the, the question, the meat question, uh, uh, the, the, <laughs> I've lost the ability to speak. The uh, question about your conclusion is one of your main conclusions is that prison is justified, but only for the most serious crimes that uh, property crimes and drug dealing and things like that, they don't necessarily warrant uh, prison time, but, but serious crimes um, of, of, of harm against persons may be justified. Can you talk a little bit, why did you come to that conclusion and what's, what's your basic argument for it? Well, since I don't think that uh, you can justify in imprisonment just because people deserve it. <laughs> so uh, it can only be justified because of the, the good ends it serves. Um, that That's partly what leads to this. So if you think, well, and I think that imprisonment is a kind of evil and it, it causes great harm. And I think you couldn't really justify it unless it prevents a greater harm. Um, so, and we shouldn't impose this kind of deprivation and suffering needlessly, right? So if if you don't need to uh, impose such a, uh, a tough penalty, then you shouldn't because you're just depriving people of liberty and causing harms that are, that are, that are, that are needless, right? Um, our justification for going to this drastic measure of confinement has gotta be that the thing we're trying to prevent is so important that we prevent that thing that we can take this drastic measure. And that leads me to certain kinds of crimes, right? The crimes that cause really great 
an irreparable harm or really kind of deep and lasting trauma, the kind of things you couldn't really fix otherwise. So that's part of the answer. Part of the answer is just we are equipped with other ways of responding to uh, less severe crimes that don't, where we don't have to go to confinement. Some of that is just technological developments that will enable us to, um, you know, rely on things like uh, ankle monitors or uh, home confinement or just a, a thicker uh, system of, of, of probation um, than we might have been able to do in the past. Right. So we can rely on these less harmful, less severe penalties to try to deter these wrongs that are not as that are not as serious. And whenever that's possible, we should do that unless they, it turns out that they're really ineffective. And then we can use as a fallback, this more severe, more harmful kind of penalty, but only kind of as a fallback when we know these others are going to be insufficient. So there's sort of a. Um, an incrementalist approach uh, implicit in that answer that, as I alluded to in the monologue, you want to do the least amount of harm and the least amount of punishment justifiable. So if there are some restorative abilities, if confining someone to their house, if making them work to repair things, if, if going through some sort of therapy, if there are all these different things, we are morally obligated to try those things first before we get to incarceration, except in a small number of cases where there is, as you say, irreparable harm and that imprisonment is the only option. Is, is, is that, again, a fair interpretation? Yes, that, that is. Because I, I, there are some things like, you know, You know, when someone's killed, I mean, there's no, you know, I mean, there's no, you can't really repair that, right? Right. <laughs> um, so there's no substitute for that person. Person's irreplaceable. And uh, so I, I think it's, a, it's critically important to try to prevent people from, from killing others. So I think that's, that's a case where I think the reliance on incarceration can be justified because the thing you're trying to prevent is just really, really important that you prevent it. It's less important. There are certain kinds of, you know, small economic crimes, various thefts and other kinds of things that are bad. People shouldn't do it, but it's just not as important that we prevent it. Um, and there are ways of kind of the restitution and reparation, other kinds of things of making up for the harm that was done. So it's that kind of distinction, I think, is really important in this domain. And we unfortunately, we rely on imprisonment for a vast range of crimes when I think we have other means of, of responding to those things. Uh, in addition to the penalties that we can use, the range of penalties we can use, we also could, frankly, this is a big abolitionist point, we could just, we could attend to the many broader socioeconomic injustices that kind of distort and warp our society and that encourage people to engage in various forms of harmful wrongdoing. And by attending to those things, we might find that we don't need to rely on penalties at all. Right. So if we had, first off, if we had a better, more just society, a lot of the crimes that we see 
uh, would probably disappear. If we had a, a, a better society or even in our kinds of society, the kind of uh, crime of opportunity or uh, low impact crime might be better dealt with in, in some other fashion. And then there are the, the, the crimes like killing somebody that, that are a different category and, and that's a different conversation. So I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. <laughs> and I actually, I mentioned it to my, my wife before the, um, before we started because I'm really not sure how to frame it. And it's, and, and it's as <laughs> follows. Um, you're dealing with such radical voices as your interlocutors that as you're reading the book, the book feels very conservative. The book feels very um, status quo almost, but it's not. And when you're really paying attention and you're look, look, listening to the conclusions, you're actually arguing for and making um, proposals that are themselves fairly radical given the world we live in today and the conversations that we're having. Uh, it's not necessarily radical in a, in a partisan way. I think some of the things that you're saying are very, very left-wing. I think some of the other things you're saying might be interpreted as much more libertarian. That aside, as someone who sees himself as, and I take this from our previous conversation and from your other books uh, and your introduction, as someone who sees himself as part of the black radical tradition, how do we, how do you, how does a reader isolate your voice so that instead of seeing you in comparison to these very, very radical voices and making you feel conservative, how do we find you in the place that you really are that gives your proposals their proper place in the discourse? Uh, like I said, it's a weird question, but... Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I feel like your voice got lost in comparison because the people that you're engaged in are so almost revolutionary at times or actually actually revolutionary at times that your conclusions don't come off as powerful as I think they are when you pay attention to that as a writer as a, as as a philosopher as someone engaged in this conversation how what what do we do about that? Yeah, um, I'll say two things about it. I mean, one thing to say about it is the way I wrote the book and the kind of audience that it's for. It's really for people who you know, like me, were aware of the prison abolition movement and this radical challenge to the practice of imprisonment, maybe policing as well, and. Who think Hob? Oh, that's in, that's intriguing. Um, serious people are putting forward this view. People who I respect and agree with on many issues are putting forward this view. What should be my view, right? So that's the con That's the audience, and that's kind of how I approach the task. I think of myself as like, here are people who I agree with about many things. Here's this thing that uh, they think as a. Even though I'm, a, I think of myself as a radical reformer of the criminal legal system they think that position is, is still too conservative. It's not radical enough. And I feel like I should take that challenge seriously. And I should try to think it through for myself. 
And I think a lot of people are probably in that same position. I mean, some, of course, will just dismiss the whole thing and think it's not worth thinking about. I think they're wrong to do that. But I think many of us, and I think a lot of our students, a lot of people who are being exposed to this set of ideas think, ah, okay, yeah, that's the right position. That's the, that's the, that's the right response to mass incarceration. It's like, it's just question the whole practice of imprisonment. Right? And so I thought it was really important to think through that and to just take what I took to be the most compelling arguments, most serious arguments, and think through whether those arguments you really yielded that conclusion. Um, so that's so part of it is to to, to read the book in, in that way, in that spirit, uh, as a person inquiring into how to think about this issue, taking the argument, trying to be charitable and how I think about what they're up to, but sometimes disagreeing with them and trying to explain why. Uh, the other thing I would say is I think it's really important in, well, in all political traditions, but I'll here I focus on the black radical tradition, for there to be open internal debate about our ultimate aims and not just about strategy and tactics, but like what fundamentally are we trying to bring about? And that has happened, you know, in various times in uh, the history of this country and elsewhere is black people have debated these questions about like, what should be what should be our basic most fundamental political aims. And if you take a thing like I think our moment is comparable to the moment where uh, the civil rights movement is going on and a radical movement of black power arises to challenge that movement as insufficiently radical. It's not going far enough. And it's important that that debate ensue between mainstream civil rights movement and black power. I mean, you read a book like Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here? Community of Chaos. And he does, he'll 50 page chapter, just trying to wrestle with the challenge of black power, trying to read it sympathetically, trying to take its, its argument seriously, conceding where there's truth and important insight but being clear about where you disagree. And I think that's an appropriate posture to, to have amongst a, in a political community or a community who are subscribed to a particular political tradition to be able to have that kind of open debate about what our basic aims should be and where we might uh, need to, to rethink things. So that's the spirit in which I approach it. It may be in doing that, I can come off looking somewhat more conservative than I am, but uh, I hope if people read it with those two points in mind, that maybe my voice might come through a little more clearly, at least the intent of the, the inquiry. I, I, I really like that answer because, first of all, it illustrates how difficult it is to write for multiple audiences at the same time. Right, that, that this conversation you're having with with the larger community, as opposed to the conversation that you're having with the black radical community, uh, are, are sometimes at odds with one another rhetorically. But, but the other thing is, especially given the two-dimensionality of, of which we learn the civil rights discussion and the fact that America is a center-right uh, country at most, uh, we have such stereotypical, such caricaturish visions of who Angela Davis is, who the Black Radicals are, who Martin Luther King was. And I really like 
when you said, you know, these are serious people and this is a serious discussion, because that I think is one of the real nice consequences of the book is it completely decimates the the caricature of what black, black radicalism is. It, 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 it forces the reader uh, and someone like me who isn't as versed in the literature as you are, it forces the reader to really take these people with a renewed seriousness and a renewed respect that sometimes gets lost in popular culture. And, and I appreciated that much uh, as well as, as the discussion about prison itself. And so in that regard, I, I encourage people to read it as well. It's a serious book for serious people and it's very careful and it's very specific uh, and it's going to make you think. Uh, and often it's going to make you think in a way that, that, you will find many things palatable that in a different discussion you would find um, not as appealing. And, and, and I, I think that's a real success. So, so Tommy, thank you so much for joining us on why. Thanks Jack for having me once again. I've always enjoyed talking with you. You have been listening to Tommy Shelby and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were asking Tommy Shelby whether we should abolish prisons, and his answer was not quite. He thought that there was a lot of reform that we could do, but his vision of what prisons are is very narrow, very specific, and I think fairly optimistic about what is possible in society. And that is the question before us. I think the real core philosophical question that underlines this and similar to conversations is, what can we reform? How bad does something have to be in order to tear it all down? Revolutionary discussion is exciting. Revolutionary language is powerful, especially when you're young. The vision of what the world could be is full of vibrant colors. And I'm not casting aspersions on that. That motivation has kept me alive in, in many respects for a very long time. But at the same moment, we really have to consider what is realistic and how we need to get from point A to point C. Sometimes tearing it all down is the wrong thing to do. And sometimes the question is, what can we do to go as far as we can to make things better? This is a question of justice. Political philosophy is always concerned with justice. Justice is the political equivalent of morality. If something is good and just, it's what we want. Are we treating our prisoners justly? Are prisons just institutions? Are police arresting the right people and treating 
uh, folks with with respect and and treating the evidence in ways that we can rely on. These are questions that have been on the table for a really long time. But at the end of the day, when we imprison people, we are taking away their freedom. We are taking away their options. We are taking away part of their humanity. And there's no justification for doing that if we can't do it in the best, most moral, most just way possible. And that's what Tommy Shelby is talking about. And that's a question that we have to face in the immediate future. With all that said, if you've been listening to this on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that a longer version with more than 30 more minutes of discussion is available online and as a podcast. Visit yradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. For everyone else, please rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all the usual social networks. Our handle is always at yradioshow. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at yradioshow.org. Click Donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to UND's alumni donation portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. Thank you yet again to my guests, the folks at Prairie Public, especially Ashley Thornburg, our suffering engineer. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Y is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>